Hi, welcome to the Mind Rolling webcast by a couple of mind rollers. We're going to keep trying to define what the hell we're talking about, but uh, we'll get it. Uh, and it's certainly moving from one thing to another. Is that nature? Then we surely are that. Um, well, we, we, we've been talking about our experiences in the from the 60s into the turn of the decade, into the early 70s, and where we were at, and all of our influences, and transforming experiences, acid, the whole music of the time, the whole nine yards. But what uh, something did happen in the late 60s, because uh, I remember you telling me at one point, that, we'll talk about oh, Frank, well, Frank Zappa. Oh, Frank Zappa, yeah. Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention used to come to Boston more than they came to most places. I don't know why. Of course, they came from, you know, California. But I got to know Frank because I had the TV show, you know, Countercultural, and he happened to see it. So he, when we called him up uh, at the Holiday Inn on Beacon Street, he said he would do my show. So we did an interview with him. I did an interview with him. I was really excited about it because the, there was nothing quite like the mothers. They were just disruptive and talk about changing your consciousness. They were madmen, but very skillful, brilliant musicians, actually. So Frank agreed to do my show, one-to-one -one interview. And I was, it was 68, and it was the time when, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, the old British thing, was still kind of predominating. Except mm. for, you know, Buffalo Springfield, the birds, those kind of things. So it came out into the studio. We did it in this huge studio B at WGBH, a really vast studio with just two chairs looking at each other. And at that time, I didn't know him. It was very intimidating. And he sat down and I sat down. And before the thing started, I just said, hello, Frank, good to meet you. It was really like that. Hello. It was very gloomy. And then I introduced my show. I said, this is what I was having Silver. This is David Silver. I'm really honored to have Frank Zappa here. And he goes, oh, you're British? <laughs> I said, well, uh, yes, quite timidly. And he said, so do you like the Beatles? Well, what are you going to say to a question like that in 1968? And I said, oh, yeah. Mm. He said, I fucking hate the Beatles, okay? Oh, I mean, and with God. that look on his face, you know, I said, well, I'm sorry, you know. So the conversation started off in this very contentious oh, manner. And by the way, he was pretty serious because he was basically saying, what is this? We've got great musicians. I mean, me and Captain Beefheart and Commander Cody and the birds and everything. Just in California, we were acing it. What's this about Liverpool? You know, he was really quite hurt. By the fact that the British, and when he found it that I was British, he thought he'd take it out of me. It so yeah. happened it developed into a real friendship. And I, every time mm. Frank came to Boston, we used to have dinner. An interesting thing about the 60s and 70s is you could never really predict what anything was about. Frank was a strict anti-drug person. Mm. The most way out musician you could imagine. Not only was he against drugs, but if anybody did in his band, he would fire them instantaneously. Right, you I know? remember. Yeah. And uh, the times I spent with him were all about Stockhausen, and Stravinsky, yeah. he was such a musicologist, you know. Mm. We, we used to play Beefheart all the time. Oh, Beefheart was the greatest. Yeah. If, you're out, if you're out there and you haven't actually listened to something of Beefheart, it's not music from the past, it's music from the future. No, it's the weirdest music I ever yeah, heard by far, and still did something to you. Absolutely. You know, you know the music of that time uh, was so interesting because you had that British thing, then you had that Southern and Northern California thing, yeah. and the Detroit thing happening very heavily. So soul music and British invasion music and California sort of drug music all was moving at the same time. Mm. You know, Otis Redding was just as likely to be played on FM radio as, as Neil Young or, 
or uh, the zombies. It was all mixed together, and that's when FM radio really mm. was great. Yeah. You know, I had a bad experience at the station, the radio station back then. With yours in Montreal? In Montreal, yeah. Oh, Terrible experience with, a, unfortunately, a member of your country. Oh, what happened? British. Is it, do, should people hear, is this going to be good? Yeah. For I don't, they this don't. is the anecdote show. We're yeah. doing anecdotes, <laughs> shamelessly. <clears throat> um, Led Zeppelin. Oh. Your friends. Um <laughs> They came to Montreal and did a big concert, and we were on the air. I actually had hired my brother, who was a fanatic R&B fan. That's all he played or listened to, Otis <laughs> and all, right? So we went to see Led Zeppelin, and we absolutely hated it, both of us. <laughs> like we were, you know, running into, how could anyone, you know, there's Hendrix, there's... Mike Bloomfield. I mean, you know, there's like incredible blues. I mean, this was what? This kind of... Anyhow. I actually, when I listen now, I go, wow, that sounds great. No, I like it now way better than I they did were then. And, you know, but um, unfortunately, my brother had a show and he said, you know, I was at this Zeppelin concert last night at the Forum. It was the worst shit. <laughs> so happened that Jimmy Page happened to be riding in his car in Montreal because they were staying over to do a television show. And he heard this because it was the only major rock and roll station there. And he heard my brother do this. Oh. He flipped out. <laughs> I mean, completely went mad. And I had to go and, and denounced him when they went on this television pop, you know, Dick Clark knockoff kind of show in Montreal <laughs> and denounced my brother. <laughs> And the radio station. <laughs> it just goes to show you can't well, be in any media and think that no one's listening. Yeah, right. No, no, you know never I mean? do that. Never, never, never. <laughs> Anyhow, I had to go to Robert Plant's hotel room. And he actually was staying in an apartment. They had rented an apartment. And uh, Jimmy wasn't there. I guess he was so pissed. And I had to go and with another DJ from England, uh, who he who knew they knew him and he knew them and he was a huge fan he got you know he was just playing them left and right yeah. i had to go apologize to i mean seriously formally on the radio i have to say you were sorry no too. i formally went to the apartment to him personally oh, oh, right. oh, and oh. apologized of course we apologized on air <laughs> for that bro of mine's air what was he thinking well i guess he was just being thinking honest. wasn't part of what was going I, I on for us I, then which brings up uh, oh. other subjects about thinking wasn't very part of our yeah, lex very wasn't very much part of our lexicon then wasn't it thinking thinking no because everything that was was moving us towards saying you, everything is overthought everything's on the intellectual level that's where we're in the trouble we're in let go turn on tune in drop out run away whatever but it wasn't thinking in the old fashioned sense because i think a lot of us felt that uh, a much more visceral and heartfelt response to the, your life was going to get was going to make you happier. Than all Seemed that. to do a lot of not very bright things back then. Though. Oh, you mean? Oh, you're not being. Company, you're saying we were just clueless. Yeah, we were clueless, thoughtless, at times. Yeah. selfish. Yeah, some of that was going on. Fortu again, fortunately, by the turn of that decade, I mean, you and I happened to be again. We, we were very lucky to have these beings come into our lives and help cha change, you know. I mean, 
I, it, it, which reminds me, this is way jumping on yeah. this thing. But this when is you, all mind rolling. Yeah, or it's mind rolling. Mind rolling. Yeah, yeah. by the mind rollers. Um, when I went to India and I lived with Neem Karoli Baba, at one point. Now we're we're talking about a powerful change, like. I say we were going through this transformative change, you know, where we were stopping being too stupid, selfish, self-centered, and so on, because, yeah. you know, we were actually starting to think there was a way to live what we learned in, in, in on these acid trips, right? Anyhow, um, at one moment, my dad decided to come on over, you know. Oh. He wants to see how we're doing. Bottom line is... Maharaji, who had, Ramdas had given LSD to, twice, nothing happened, said to me, did you give him the medicine when he got there? I mean, you're talking about an entrepreneurial businessman. He might have smoked a joint by then. Anyhow, he told me to give him, take care of him while he was in India. Get him some acid. If you can believe that, being said by this, you know, this being. And we was go, his idea? He said to me, give him the medicine while he, take care of him. Give him that medicine. Oh. My father was a tyrannical egomaniac. Okay? Yes. So, and I've described this in other places uh, yeah. in detail. But suffice to say, he had a death trip in <laughs> Benares where people go to die by the Ganges River. And his life after that was never the same. And we were able to become friends. Yeah. So this happened in those early 70s. Talk about his life absolutely categorically changed. He was a bomber pilot in the Second World War, and he mm. thought he wasn't afraid to die because he was the only one who lived in his squadron at the end of the war. Mm. And so talk about transformation and the power of that energy and um so you have, in one sense, the era that we were in and, and hit how so many things lent itself to this transformation. And then, and then, of course, there you know we talked about these beings and we talked about them out of not necessarily needing to be in a body to relate with that which is you know, no different than who you are inside. That's intellectual, but that is the truth. Mm. Um, and these transformations really happen. You know, and uh, I, I guess that's uh, the thing is they were negativized though, because what we would say, what people would say, were you know, very uptight about this. You know, people have acid flashes, and well, yeah, but it wasn't flashes; it was all the time. Because once you did that in the right way, uh, your entire life was yeah, you still made mistakes and still had problems on a more trivial level, but there was something that crept in that never went away, and that to me was some. And I think Ramdas has said this on numerous occasions, which is when he's been asked, which people ask him all the time, even now, do you regret having been, you know, doing psychedelics and talking about them and everything? And he always says, no, it was the doorway that helped me, you know, leave the, the unsatisfactory life and behavior that I was doing. And so, but, you know, he always says, you know, you have to be very thoughtful, not thoughtful. Um, it's fastidious about the way you take them and all of that. Your father, I'm interested to know, because that wasn't normal. I didn't know one other person whose father or mother, anybody out of the generation, who had the, you know, cojones to take this. What I, I mean, when he took it, okay, he took it. 
What was the transformation like? I mean, how long did it take him before he, he threw away his old ego identity? Yeah. We were horrible. My brother and I, yeah. and uh, my who, partner who was my wife-to-be, we um, gave it to him, and we were on a houseboat on the Ganges that was swaying back and forth, <laughs> the river and the mist and the whole nine yards. People all along that bank is people washing, praying, doing their laundry, dying, being born, being christened, uh, cows, dogs, it's, everybody's there. The whole, and, and then dolphins in the actual river. There were well. dolphins in the There's river? river dolphins. I've never heard that before. Yeah, in the Ganges. Yeah, you see My them. goodness. And hopefully these bodies, there's enough money for enough wood so that the bodies completely burn because when they don't, the dolphins eat the remaining, and dogs and everybody. So, yeah, this is the scene. Can you imagine that, no. yeah, dear no, old dad's I, taking acid <laughs> on the roof of this houseboat, looking over the river, and we are sitting around watching him with our eyes, like, Gunk, how you doing? <laughs> Anything happening yet? You know, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. So we were terrible, we, you know. And then he was like reading. I remember he started the trip by reading, and he got all into what he was reading at the time. And then that stopped, and he was just sort of. We felt like okay, maybe he needs to walk, right? So we took took him off the boat and started walking through the alleys of Benares. Now, there are these tiny i mean you're talking centuries and centuries and centuries it's like going back you know tiny alleys with people living in temples and and products being sold and saris and i mean it's just you know you go through different you know muslim neighborhood and then ooh, and then hindu neighborhood whoops they're not you know yeah. i mean i've been in riots in Benares where i had to hide out i mean you know it's a charged place because of all that yeah. and we took them through there first thing we came upon was a dead donkey you know god and then it just died and then a dead man and his body was there and they were people were passing by and throwing coins on it he's obviously very poor and the idea i guess somebody was there i don't know who was maybe it was a relative was taking care and they were trying to collect enough money to properly burn the body so he came upon the, so it's all death he had a big time death trip I mean, that's what he needed, you know. I mean, it was unbelievable. And after that, market, I've never seen such a market change that lasted beyond the time that he had the trip. I mean, it totally rewired him, you know. And then, you know, he went back, and uh, before he went back to America, he saw Maharaji again, and who told him everything about his life. He had a farm and animals and what happened to, I mean, stuff that nobody could know. And he broke down and that, you know, and that was the beginning of the end for him. He actually came back six months later after we had come back to Canada from India. He went back a few months later after us and spent a couple of months there hmm. with my sister and so on. He took my, you know, my whole family basically. So he was absolutely transformed in that moment and that stayed. I, mean, I, you know, very miraculous, especially if he had known my relationship and, and so no, on. No, because so by the time I knew him and quite a few other people, uh, he is very, uh, he was not affable, but tremendously to the point. And very, if you asked him a question or 
wanted to, he was very forthcoming. There wasn't the slightest bit of, of tightness. And very wise. Everybody, I think, acknowledges that he, if he just put his mind to it, he could solve a problem for you. He certainly mm. did with me. You know, so it stuck. Yeah. Forever. Yeah, no, that whatever, certainly, because you met him after that. Yeah. Now, around this time, some of these beings from India, some were teachers, some were called gurus, some were swamis, and so on. Um, mm. They were coming, and they were spending time in the States, and many people were being, um, m you know, magnetized, basically. Some were yeah. fairly righteous, some were not, maybe, and taking advantage. And most, for the most part, were teachers. I don't know of a being like a, you know... Um, Ananda Mahima, Neem Karoli, Baba Shirdi, that kind of a no. thing that, that, that was there. But do you have some recollection? Because that's also formative when these beings started to come over. Um, well, Mukt Swami Magdananda was one of those. And um, because I knew th that he was revered by people that I re liked, loved even, I... Um, I had darshan with him, which consisted of... What actually happened was I gave a lecture uh, somewhere, and after the lecture, two guys came up to me very sort of formally and said, we listen to the lecture, and my lectures at that time were about uh, LSD. <laughs> they were about, you know, how to use it, and what the fourth mm. dimension and LSD, mm. I think is what it was called. Anyway, they, they were there, and they said, we, we want you to meet our, our Baba, and the, he's going to be on the Upper West Side in Manhattan in three weeks. And I went. And there were about... Um, only 30 people in a small room, and we chanted and meditated. He didn't speak, he not, didn't say a word. Now, for those of you who might not know, Muktananda looked more like Miles Davis, and <laughs> he had dark glasses exactly. and uh, was extremely cool looking, you know. Uh, but what people used to talk about with him was this thing called Shaktipat, that he would maybe tap you on the head or smack you on the head or do something, and you would have this sudden onrush of Shakti or divine energy and, and, and feel completely transformed and so on. So that was the kind of thing that was floating around, and I knew about it. So I was kind of excited to go. Interestingly enough, nothing happened to me that I that seemed any different from any other experience, even at the supermarket or watching TV. Absolutely nothing. So what do you do with that? Mm. I didn't feel good about actually telling people this because it sounded like I was automatically saying, that's all nonsense. There's no mm. transference of energy, none of it. I knew that I got to know by that time that if it wasn't the exact right teacher with the exact right student, you might as well, I, right. you didn't see or feel anything. But at the same time, you couldn't then dismiss them because you had to be open to the karmic fact or that maybe they're just not for you. Yeah, and that's so much of how it is and how everything is. I yeah. mean, what happens to you in life even, you know, once you see that, you see it's perfect for unraveling what's needed for you to unravel. Yeah, because you see people with, with Sashtananda, particularly in New York, at the uh, Integral Yoga, and I was present with him a few times, and people were just over the top when they were with him. I mean, they'd just be, you know, and I never, I thought he was amazing to look at, and definitely, you know, had um, knowledge, and was a very beautiful being. Mm. I didn't know mm. anything else, though. I, I couldn't feel, I wasn't able to gain anything from it. And that's another part of that era, which there was sort of no grounding for anything. You sort of, it was like, you know, catch as catch can. You hear about a teacher, a guru, 
you go. It wasn't as if there was a yoga journal or a, not really, not till later. New Age Journal came at the end of the 70s, I think. Yeah, something, something like that, that. yeah. Fair enough, sir. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, this is very much what started to happen where more and more of these beings came over. Came over and uh, that started to affect a segment of the culture, one might say. Mm. Um, I mean, today, you can't, I mean, geez, you can't, you, wherever you go, you can shake a stick, so to speak, and you can have access to almost any of these traditions from mm. from the East, from Tibet, you know. I mean, it's just amazing. But back then, every time somebody came over, it was kind of a unique thing, and it, and it gathered us mm. together, and that started to create... Um, Western satsangs, and you know, certainly, for instance, there's one, and I have to mention this for people to to check out, because uh, again, I'm going to refer to my friend Duncan, and um, he is always saying, "Yeah, if you think of someone, I want to read that book, or I want to, you know." And here's um, one of the things that came back from the east that we were very close to, people that had gone over to see Maharaji, was um, insight meditation practice, which was um, really, I would, it, it, it's um, Hinayana Buddhism, and it's, this particular practice was in Burma, was developed in Burma, and was very strong there, and teachers came out of there. There was one Indian teacher in particular named Goenka that many of us met, and yeah. Munindra was another, and... Uh, some people came out of that tradition, three particular people, and started two major centers on the East and West Coasts, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Cornfield. And they, and here's my recommendation, folks, these people are absolutely, if you get a chance to, to be at any of their retreats or whatever, even a, even a talk, I know Sharon gives talks in New York, Please take advantage. I mean, some of the most straightforward, practical ways to deal with uh, the unraveling, so to speak, and certainly deal with mind, emotions, and all that stuff, uh, and gain true insight. I mean, it's a it's a practice that I I think I I understood that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama actually had given instructions to have novice monks use that as a basis, which is unusual. Um, but bottom line is, uh, that's a high recommendation. So people, so some of this stuff that came back from the East started to be really um, a major contribution to the culture and mixed in. Mm -hmm. Buddhism, Buddhism now is very much a West, you know, a, the Buddhism that's here is really being, um, it's not westernized, but it's being integrated into the Western psychology and, and dealing with, uh, it's particularly the scientific elements. You know, His Holiness is working with people like uh, Danny Goldman, you know, who's, who's, who's uh, one of the group that went to, uh, to India to see Maharaji, and, and working on these kind of uh, investigations mm -hmm. that I think are, are really super and, and bring a lot more people in, in, get more people involved, um, which is a great thing. But so this started to happen in those days, and we uh, we basically took took a big advantage of it. And I guess our next hmm. intersection here um, is around 
kind of when when we came back from India, and of course that's there's a huge story there of all of us going there. The interest, the probably the most interesting to people is that a number of these people, Danny Goldman being one of them, Krishnadas being another, who who's a chant chants around the world and um, is is uh, really doing it in the way that we were given in India. I mean, he's really, and Jai Utah as well. Mm. Um, so people from different walks have made different contributions from the East that are very present now in, in the West. So, you know, that's certainly uh, a part of what happened when that disbursement happened. And of course, Ramdas is the, the biggest example with Be Here Now because it, it affected millions of people, literally. Um, and goes on to this day, which another subject we'll take up later. But um, what, uh, just what are your your ideas and well, recollections of, of this starting to pull together different uh, satsangs, different communities, spiritual communities, and how they were mm-hmm. interfacing with each other and so mm-hmm. on and so forth? And uh, It still seemed a little bit sort of, you know, random. For me, it was because I know that Trungpa was was m- major. Was, yeah, that's a major influence. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, you can only really read up be- him. By the way, oh. Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Or Meditation much, in action. Yeah, pretty much any of the books in his Shambhala, Shambhala publications came out of originally out of Trungpa and Naropa, I guess. But again, you know, there was nothing institutionalized or or in any way regimental regimented about this. I don't know how I came into contact with Trungpa. I have no idea. I don't remember. But I know that every time he came to Boston, every time he came to Boston, I would do anything to see him. And then I would go to Vermont because he had a place in a Tale of the Tiger in Vermont and one in, in Colorado, I suppose. Uh, yeah. So I would you know, drive up to this little village in Vermont and he would take over a little church there and talk and, and drink a lot of sake. I didn't know. You know, we were there. So, yeah. did you did you know Ramdas then? This is because no. when we used to go there, it was nineteen, because it was when we came back from India. I used to meet Ramdas up at Tale of the Tiger, in nineteen seventy three. It was a little after that. Oh, so you came after that? Definitely, yeah. right? It was right. a little after that. But I do remember this: that I, going up there and hearing him talk, and the way he used humor and. Americanisms and American culture, even whatever he picked up, within this amazing—I mean, the word "amazing" doesn't cover it. Hmm. He was a master, absolutely. Uh, and, but he would, you know, was dressed in a Harris tweed jacket and slacks and a nice tie and very well kempt and everything. But he was just as authentic as it could be, and it was—it was really gratifying to see how many people were drawn to him. Um, of you know without any conflict really with anything else it wasn't like people who were um following the works of ramdas or or even older back alan watts and paul reps and all that other tradition of well alan was very close to him yeah you know and yeah. uh, you know at that time right. and well yeah ginsburg was very that's when he oh, yeah. started his buddhist practice I yeah think. yeah it was definitely through this so that's a big marker it's funny that we have these uh it is i didn't know that i mean uh, we didn't really talk about that over no. all these years so it's it's interesting how uh, we yeah i don't jump I in even, and out of, of i can't things. even honestly do it justice as to what i felt when i was at a trunk 
uh, talk, or and they, they, they were interactive to some extent. There were certainly questions. He used to make fun yeah. of us. Did you know that? No. Yeah, we'd be in the audience. We, meaning Ramdas, uh, being the personality that Trump, uh, you know, would would jive. That yeah. he'd start talking about the. Oh, yeah, and people, you know, that are on this, you know, they go to the East and they bring this back as if they've, you know, just become enlightened and suddenly everything is love and light. <laughs> and he'd go, right, Ramdas? Oh. <laughs> he was constantly jiving. No, he was a real that, that, you know, uh, trickster. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and of course, yeah. there was many things about him that were, uh, shall we say, uh, n- not really understandable by virtue of the level of being he was in terms of the duality of the stuff he's involved with, with uh, uh, sex stuff and all that. But that's neither here nor there. He was, uh, and to this day remains, an yeah. important an important teacher in, in, yeah. in the whole pantheon of these people who have come from the East. So, again... I mean, we took advantage of this stuff. I mean, we really did at the time. I mean, we really took advantage, and and that became more and more of our focal point. You know, I mean, earning earning the uh, grub as uh, Tuari told that story. <laughs> grub, and, yes, right. Earning your rotis, as they put it in India, um, was certainly part of the equation. But yeah. um, but there was a way in which we really. We wanted a balance. I mean, you know, I didn't personally, I, I was in the radio business. After I got back from India, I worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corp and, and did, you know, programming for them. But it wasn't front and center anymore for me. Front and center was really developing more of, uh, you know, a, an identification with soul rather than role, as Ramdas says so much. You know, yeah. I mean, that's really a good way to put it. Yeah. Now, um, that is a whole other discussion. Um, yeah. in, from you know, from moving from the roles that uh, we find ourselves in, and all sorts of roles. It doesn't have to be just your job, mm-hmm. and moving into a into soul. I think that we would have to say. Is that this is going? To, this was primary to our to the arc of our lives. If you could say anything about what it is, we went from point A to B to C to D as we went through all of these things that we've been, you know, talking about here from the late '60s into the turn of that decade. It it really was, you know, the development of identification with who we really are. And how much of that was happening at any given time maybe was, you know, a, a little microscopic. And But as time has gone on, certainly there is absolutely an evolution. And I guess that's one thing we can offer up. But, uh, yeah, let's, uh, we'll talk about that next time. Okay. We're mind rollers. 